because that's very confronting. As we were setting up this morning, I was walking through the gym and there was a baseball bat lying on the floor and I thought, hmm, that's probably a good analogy for the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea that we're going to look at today. We've been working through seven letters to seven churches. Some of those churches were doing wonderful things. Some of those churches were in a mess and Jesus was commending them and then correcting them and then challenging them to change their behavior or do what was ever ever was necessary to get back into right relationship with God. We looked at the church at Ephesus, which was a busy church, but there was no love there. As you mingled amongst the people, their motivation really wasn't love of God or love of one another. Their hearts had sort of gone cold, and the Lord rebuked them for that. Then we looked at Smyrna. Smyrna was a little church that was very, very persecuted. And yet in the midst of that persecution and opposition, they stood fast. They were a great church and Jesus commended them. Then we went to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. All those churches had varying degrees of good and bad, except for Philadelphia, the one we looked at last week, where Jesus said, no, this is a church that is steadfast and true, holy and true. They were a church that were um, blessed by God. And then we come to the letter to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are just lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and self to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that's a baseball bat sort of a letter, isn't it? Full on, straight ahead. It's interesting, when I was a kid, um, I don't know if you had brothers or sisters like this, but when I got a bag of lollies, I ate the good ones first and worked my way down to the ones that I really didn't like. And then, so if it was jelly beans, I'd start with the black, then the blue, then the red, then, you know, green, didn't really like yellow, and I hated white. But because I liked lollies, eventually I'd get through them all. Now, my sister was totally the opposite. She would always save the best to last. You know, she'd go through and she'd go, I don't like the white ones, so I'll eat them first. And she'd frustratingly be patient and work her way and save the best to last. Now, I, I wonder why Jesus didn't save the best to last, but, in, but he saved the worst to last when he wrote this letter to this church. It's quite sad. Now, this church had a deadly disease. It was infected with a disease that is probably the worst type of disease you could have in a church because they didn't realize they were sick. 
They said, we're rich, there's nothing we need, we're doing really well. And yet Jesus came along and said, you what? You don't understand the condition you're in. You don't realize just how corrupt your lives are, how indifferent you are, how lazy and apathetic you are. And Jesus rebuked them. I think that's the worst type of thing you can suffer as a church. Interestingly enough, if you go to Laodicea today, there's nothing there. You would struggle to find a few ruins. This town's been wiped off the face of the earth. But it was an incredibly wealthy city, but it was also a city renowned for health, health and wealth. That was their motto in the church. They were a, a trading town, and they were renowned for a jet black uh, woolen cloth that they produce. And it's interesting that a lot of the geographic features of this town, Jesus uses in his letter to help them understand what's happening in their lives. So he says to them, I want you to buy white cloth so you can cover your nakedness. But this town was renowned for producing black cloth. So Jesus uses a lot of the peculiarities of this town to drive his message home. The name of the town Laodicea was the wife of the man who founded the town. It was known for earthquakes, uh, renowned for that. And there was a real contrast in this city between the rich and the poor. Like this was Millionaire's Row in Asia Minor at that time. A lot of very, very, very wealthy people. And in, in that town, people would come when they were poor because they knew there were lots of rich people who might hand out things. So there was this contrast when you walk the streets You'd see fine robes and people dressed up, but you would also see beggars and a lot of people that were really struggling. And it was famous for its wealth, but it was also famous for an eye ointment that they made, a white powder that they would mix with water and, and rub it on people's eyes. And it, it was a, an ointment that was a cure for a lot of diseases. So they were renowned right throughout Asia Minor. And interestingly enough, Jesus, when he's correcting them, says, you know, I will give you a, a salve to put on your eyes so you can see how blind you really are. They didn't realize what a mess that they were in. But probably the most famous feature of this town was it was known for aqueducts. On the right-hand side of the city of Laodicea was a town called Hierapolis, and it had cascading um, waterfalls that were boiling hot water that came out of the volcanic ground. And people would go and bathe there in the hot water and it would relieve their, their aches and pains. And so Heropolis was the next city. And so it was renowned for this hot water, boiling hot water. On the other side of Laodicea was Colossae. And it was known for its spring water, freezing cold, pristine, beautiful drinking water. And what some bright bunny at Laodicea said was, why don't we pipe the water from Heropolis and Colossae and we can have hot water and we can have cold water. And so they built these wonderful aqueducts to feed this water into the town. But the problem was that the hot water coming out of the volcanic springs, by the time it got to Laodicea, was lukewarm. And it was full of sediment, so it was no good for bathing in. And the water that they piped from Colossae, when it was cold, by the time they piped it to Laodicea, had gone lukewarm as well. And so you couldn't drink it. If you did drink it, it would make you want to vomit. It had like a volcanic flavor to it. It, it. it was not what it should have been. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, these people knew that because they knew their water was really of no purpose, had no value. And that's what he was trying to say to them. 
Interesting that Jesus just used those things. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I want to ask you a question. Would your friends say that you're a good friend? Would they say of you, yep, Daryl, he's a good friend. He's a good friend to me. Would they say that of Mark? Would they say that of Darren? Would they call you a good friend? My point is this. A faithful and true friend will always tell you the truth. They won't flatter you. They won't lie to you. They'll tell you the truth. That's why that we have few and far good friends. Because most people don't want to tell us the truth in love, do they? Most people, when it comes to an awkward scenario, go, well, I'll take the safe ground. But a good friend will actually say, you know, there's some truth in that. And Jesus is saying, I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm going to tell these group of people at Laodicea what they are really like. I'm not going to butter them up. I'm not going to avoid the hard thing. I'm going to come and I'm going to be a faithful and true witness and I'm going to love them by telling them what's true. You know that awkward scenario where your wife comes and she says, I bought a new dress, darling. What do you think? <laughs> but really, isn't that, isn't that the greatest dynamic of a relationship when we can be honest and truthful and say, you know, darling, it looks okay on you, but I don't really like the color. That's probably dangerous ground, but she'd still wear it. That's good because she's got a good self-esteem. But Jesus is saying, I'm the amen, I'm the ultimate. And if I declare something to be true, if I speak something out, then, then there's no negotiation in this. It's the true fact. And for this church, this was a pretty blunt message. And Jesus was just saying, look, you know, I'm not going to flatter you. I'm not going to say it's better than it is. I'm not going to say it's worse than it is. I'm just going to give you the facts because I'm faithful and true. I will always be true to my character and my word. So that's what Jesus did. He came, and I want to encourage you to be a faithful friend. Sometimes there are hard situations in our life where we've got to say things that won't always be easy to receive. You know, if Jesus was a bit nervous about what this church might do when they got this letter, he would have watered down the message, but he knew he had to confront them. And sometimes in relationship, God has to come and he has to say, listen, Mark, you think you're at this point in your life, but really you're not. You've deluded yourself or you're mixed up in things that aren't right. Now, God does that because he loves us. But he needs to do it at times in our life. He needs to come and confront us. And because he's the ruler of creation, because he's the amen, because he has supreme power and authority, there's no one better to get the truth from. Because you know it's not mixed up with any other motives. If Jesus comes and says, Shannon, I want you to get this right, you know it's for your best interests. You know that God's got you, got your life in his hands and he wants the very best for you. So we have to respect that. When I was um, a teenager, here's true confessions, I was fascinated by the band Kiss. Remember Kiss? And remember Kiss got to that point in their journey where they were going to unmask. It was a shame that they did because they were all ugly. <laughs> they looked far much, far better with their makeup on. But there was a real hype about them being unmasked. And this is a bit like that. Jesus came to this church and said, you're wearing a mask. 
and I'm going to rip that mask off so that you can see what you're really like underneath. Now, I think that this is the saddest church because if you think about it clearly, there was no persecution. There was no paganism. They weren't, for, they weren't worshipping foreign gods or anything like that. There was no heresy. There was no doctrine in their church that Jesus said, you need to correct this. It's, it's bent a little bit. There was no immorality. And yet this is the only church where Jesus can't find one thing to say well done. All the other churches had persecution or paganism or immorality or some sort of doctrine that had got warped and Jesus tried to correct that. They had none of this. Not one trace of this at all. And yet Jesus still comes out the other end and says, I can't even find one thing to say is good. That's what makes this letter so tragic and so sad. You know, the other thing that makes it so scary is that it's probably the church most like the Western church because they were rich, they had lots of resources, they ended up being self-reliant. They didn't need God. They were doing fine. They had money in the bank, they had houses, they had food on the table, they had everything that they needed. And what that did to them was drove them away from God. The sad part is that they thought they were rich. Now that's the worst kind of disease, I think. Jesus comes and he says, you know, there's great, no greater insult to me as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords than for you to be lukewarm about relationship with me. Like Jesus said, and this is rare in scripture, it's better off for you to be cold-hearted and be outside the church than to be inside the church and be meh, mediocre, half-hearted, apathetic, whatever word we want to put on that. The word is indifference. And Jesus said, that is so repulsive to me that I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out. Now, that's graphic language. That's very vivid portrayal of, of Jesus' response to this church. And, and all I can say to you is, because Jesus reacted so violently, then we've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why, when all these other churches had all these problems that we would go, oh, isn't that horrific? They were sleeping with one another. He didn't react like that to them. He said, repent and get it right. But when it comes to this church, he says, well, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That, that's, that's pretty in-your-face language. And I believe there's two reasons why. It's insulting to God, first and foremost, because what it's really saying is that, that I can be so-so about Jesus. You know, worship can be something that I do on Sunday and tick the box and go home. And God is saying, no, if you're in this, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to stand in relationship with me, then there's only one temperature. It's red hot burning for God. Anything else is not satisfactory to God. When you stick the thermometer into your heart in terms of a spiritual dynamic and you pull it out, if it's not boiling, then God's saying, get it boiling. Do something to get it red hot. And the flip side of that is because when the world looks at us, it needs to see passionate, enthusiastic, vibrant people for God. Because it's the only thing that will stir the world up. 
The world doesn't get stirred up by half-hearted Christians. They're not offended by people that go to church on Sunday. That's fine. But when you're passionate about God and you worship him and he's part of your life and and he's an integral part of your life and you've got that zeal and that enthusiasm from God that it overflows, it starts to irritate people because you're passionate about God. That's when it gets up their nose. That's when it really starts to stir the world up. Now, the church doesn't stir Australia up. Why? Because we're not passionate. We're We're a little bit indifferent. Why are we indifferent? Because we're affluent. It's a curse. Affluence is a curse. I'm taking a group of guys to Fiji in a couple of weeks' time and we're going to sit in the slums with people. And I can tell you the one lesson you learn from sitting with poor people is that their reliance is on God. Because they don't have good health or they don't have money in the bank that they can fall back on or they're not sure where their next meal is coming from, their need level is high, so their dependency on God is high. Whereas we're the opposite way around. We don't have great pressing needs. When we do, that's when we run to God. But somehow in our affluence, and I don't think affluence is wrong, the symptom of affluence is it makes us dead to God. And somehow we've got to deal with the affluence and not allow it to be an encumbrance to our life. That was the most scary thing for Cheryl and I about coming back from Fiji, because in Fiji we didn't have an income, and we were really relying on God to meet our needs. And I tell you what it did, it made us press into God much more. When we came home and we got an income and you know we got things around us that were nice and comfortable, we could feel spiritually the distance beginning to build between us and God. It just dulls your faith. And this church, I don't think, started out with a motive, you know, to walk away from God. But at the end of it, they were over here saying, hey, we're rich. We're rich in God. And then when God shows up, God says, you're what? You're rich in me. You're naked. You're wretched. You're poor. You're blind. Now, they're they're full on words. And that's the danger for us, that we can get into that diseased mindset where we think we're doing okay. And and God is actually saying, no, you've missed something here. You've got entangled in things of the world. Get out. The word in scripture is not lukewarm. It's actually tepid. And the whole idea of something being tepid is that it's unpalatable. You know what it's like when you drink a, 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 a drink of water that's been out in the sun. You get it in your mouth and the gag reflex just goes, <coughs> get this out of here. And that was, that's what this church was like to Jesus. It made him nauseous. Lukewarm churches make Jesus sick. We've got to be hot. We've got to have this fire. We've got to have a fervency. We've got to have a zeal about our lives. The sad part about, I think what happens a lot in church dynamics is that We try and stoke the fire of enthusiasm not by looking at God but by what we put around us in the church. So if we have a worship leader who's up the front who's really vibrant and trying to stir everybody up, we try to emotionally get people charged and get them moving with God. But the problem is when they walk out the door, that just goes. So that's why before Jesus released the apostles, he said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, for the fire of God to fall. It's not like, 
you know, Cheryl's on fire for God. She's a hot coal. We'll put her here. And then Melanie's a bit cold. So we'll put Melanie next to her and we'll put some more cold people off around. And the heat of Cheryl will begin to get these other coals hot. No, it doesn't work like that. The fire starts in here when God births the fire because God's fire, his energy, his presence, his power, it's not hooked up to anything. It's there forever to burn to energize, to consume the stuff in our life that we don't need. And so we don't have to keep coming back to church every Sunday to get a fix, to stoke us up, to get us vibrant again, to go out into the world. That's the cycle that's always going to go like this. But the fire of God starts in here when this, when we are baptized into the Holy Spirit and we surrender to God, we give him lordship out of our life and that fire comes a fire that we can't contain and we can't control. And what that does is it burns away everything that's not of God and it fixates us on godly things and we go hard for God, red hot. We don't wax and wane like this. There's a fire that burns. And that's what we need in the church. We need more of God's fire. We need a consuming fire to incinerate our worldliness and our self-reliance. We need an incessant fire, this constant fire, to generate a source of our power and our energy, not stoked by man. You know, one of the scary things about lead, being a leader in a church is that you know that people hang on to you to be energized in their faith. That scares me because I'm no different to you. The source of my enthusiasm and energy and conviction about things of the Spirit and moving with God has to come from God alone. Because otherwise, if that principle works, then Mark's got to find somebody to get heat and energy off. And that person's got to find someone. And that person, we just go around in this vicious cycle. It's not like that. It's Lord set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain and that I can't control. We've got to be set on fire for God. The sad part is that in our theology and in our doctrines, in many conservative churches, we ignore that because it's in the too hard basket. And we say to people that pursuing God is a godly thing and you can be a righteous person, you can go after God, but we forget to do the Holy Spirit thing. We forget to birth people into the fire of God at the very beginning. And so we have in the Christian church today a lot of godly people, but they're not spiritual people. They're great men and women of God who know the word of God. They love the Lord. We're not questioning their salvation, but they're missing out on something that Jesus said was vital. And we're going to look at that a little bit next week. But I want to challenge you today. I want to ask you the question, are you a spiritual man or woman? Are you born of the Spirit of God? Do you have a fire down deep in your soul that God ignited somewhere in your journey that's never gone out? Sometimes we've got to come back to God and say, God, renew in me a passion for you. Renew the fire. But it's not, Mark, can you come and pray for me so that the fire burns? He's the source of the fire, not me. And our dependency has to be on God. I don't know if you've ever sat with someone when when that 
encounter with God has happened. It's an incredible thing to witness. When you see the Spirit of God come and touch a human being and you see the fire burn, like you can't see it because it's happening spiritually and internally, but you can see a manifestation of that experience on that person. Is it strange? Yes. Is it a little bit hard to accept? Yes, it is, because it's about giving God control. It's about coming to a point in your life like this church had to and go, I've been living a way that's unpleasing to God and I want to give that up and I want to surrender everything to you, Lord. Would you come? Would you come and take control of my life? John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's quite justifiable for anyone to ask you, are you on fire for God? It's not a complicated question. You already answered already. You already know right now whether you're on fire for God or not. The question is what you do about the response. What Jesus is saying, there's only one temperature that matters, being red hot for Jesus. You know, we're often concerned about the indifference out in the world. Oh, no one loves the Lord, no one. But Jesus was more concerned about the indifference within the church. He was saying, we've got to get this right. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The beautiful thing about this is even though Jesus said, look at the wretched state that you're in, there's always hope in God. doesn't matter how cold our hearts are or how much of a mess we've made of things. There's always just a choice to say, God, here I am, do a new thing. And God will honor that. That's the beautiful thing about God. You're only one choice ever away from getting things right. You know, the height of deception, I think, is to believe that God's well-pleased and then you discover he's not. It's great when we rip those masks off and we be authentic before God and we just say, Lord, this is who I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know, we always use that verse for non-Christians, don't we? Here's God coming to unbelievers, knocking on the door of their heart, saying, I want to come in and be your Lord. That's not the context of this passage. Jesus was standing outside the door of the church, knocking, saying, can you let me in? You know, you're having a good time in there, but, but, but I'm not part of it. And we can laugh about it, but it's tragic. That's the sad part, that Jesus had to... Had to to knock on the door. Now, this is this is why this is so beautiful. Because God, in his fullness, could just barge his way into that church and just say, right, I'm taking over. But he won't operate like that. God never does. He always waits for an invitation. He always waits for us to come to the realization of what our condition is and then say, God, would you do something about that? He's a gentleman. That's what I love about God. The thing that I love about it is when we say, Lord, here's the door. It's I'm opening it. 
he'll never fail to walk through. He'll always come and meet us and sup with us and sit with us and meet the needs that we have. The beautiful part about this is that it only takes one person. If anyone, you know, if that church was totally dead and everyone was off, you know, in their deception, it only would have taken one man or one woman to hear that message from God and say, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry for the condition I'm in. I want to come back to you. And revival would have started in that church because of one person. It only ever takes one. We've got to be that one person. We've got to have the ones to have the courage. You know, I I remember in my journey with God, realizing that because of my conservative background and theology, that I'd missed out on a whole teaching about the Holy Spirit and being on fire for God. And I saw other people and I saw the way that they operated spiritually. Now, I was a godly man. I was a righteous man, but something was missing. I wasn't a spiritual man. The things of the spirit didn't make sense to me. I was always questioning, always arguing. Oh, I don't understand prophecy. It must be must be just made up stuff. Oh, I don't understand why people speak in tongues or do those things. It must be just, you know, they're kooks. You know, they're fanatics. And, and, and all the spiritual things were always, for me, a stumbling block. Until I realized, no, that's the way God operates. I'm over here trying to do it a man's way. And God's over here saying, come over to the spiritual realm. Come and do it my way. That's why I said to my disciples, wait till you have this encounter and this this power and authority of me manifesting myself in you because then you can live the Christian life in all its fullness. And if I could do one thing in the life in my life, it would be to go to every church that is living without spiritual authority and spiritual power and help them take the blinkers off. Because trying to live a godly life without the Spirit's fire and presence in your life is just plain hard work. It is. It's just hard work to keep it up. It's not supposed to be that way. The beautiful thing, God, is God won't just overtake your life and, and, and usurp that place in your life if you don't give him permission to come. But the moment that you do, he will. He'll honor that. Can you imagine what it was like to be a pastor of a church and go to one of the elders in your church and go, you know, I don't think I'm baptized in the spirit. I felt about that big. I felt so like I'd been robbed and I was angry and yet I knew that that anger had to die and God had to reign in my life. I was so scared of what might happen. So scared of the manifestations that might happen. So scared that I might lose control. You know something? That was exactly the point. That I wanted to keep control. I wanted to be in control of what could happen in my life. And I realized that I had to surrender control. The faithful and true witness will tell you where you are in relationship with him he'll tell you yes you need this he'll tell you yes deal with this that's what i love about god he's always honest with us here's the danger three dangers we get too busy too absorbed in other things and our lives get cluttered with all the wrong priorities and god gets put on the back burner 
or we're too afraid to open the door to greater things in God because we fear that what Jesus is going to ask us to do. Isn't that it? Sometimes we're so scared to go forward in God because we don't know what God's going to ask us to do. You know, he might say, Brad, Africa, you know, what if God asked that of me? You know, would I respond? Would I? But we can't be fearful of what God calls us to do because surrender to his lordship is that he has the right to do with us anything that he wants. We give up that privilege and right to decide anymore and we let God have rulership over our life. The cost might be too great. The sacrifice might be too dear. And that stops us. Well, sometimes I think the third thing is that we're just too ashamed. We've made too many mistakes. We're, we've been dead for so long. You know, we haven't really been in great relationship with God and we're, we're just too ashamed to deal with it. Too ashamed to take the mask off and just be authentic with God. I think that's really sad. But you know, God can declutter our lives. He didn't give us a spirit of fear. And he's a God that will always clean up the mess in our lives. He's the one we need most when we're in a mess. He'll meet us. You know, the sad part about this church is that when this letter was written, there is not one ounce of historical evidence thereafter of this church. It's like it just vanished off the planet. When we look at Ephesus and Sardis and all those other six churches, there's historical documents where those churches are mentioned. This church is never heard of again. So did they repent? You'd have to think no, because it just disappeared. You know, Jesus promised them, if you walk this life in intimacy with me, in passion with me, the day is going to come when you're going to sit with me in glory. And just as Jesus conquered all the hardship of this life and, you know, sat at the right hand of his Father and was exalted, the day will come when this church would have been exalted. These individuals would have sat at Jesus' side, honoured, privileged for their obedience. What a tough message, eh? What a tough message. I wonder if the coals of your heart are burning for God today. If we were to um, put a thermometer into your life, spiritual life today, and we pulled it out, what would it say? Lukewarm, cold, getting there, or red hot for God. I think this passage of Scripture tells us there's only one option. We've got to be hungry for God. We're going to be walking with fire and passion in our lives. We're going to sing a couple of songs this morning. They're um, songs that revolve around this theme this morning. And uh, we wanted to give plenty of time for people to respond today because I don't know how you can read this passage of Scripture and not be confronted. Because it's very black and white. We either serve God with passion and fervency or Jesus is saying, get out. You're better off out because he can't stand half-heartedness. 
And there should be something about us as a group of people, as a family, where we should be saying, no, we're not going to tolerate half-heartedness. We're not going to tolerate religion. We're not going to tolerate just going through the motions. If we're seeing difference in one another's lives, just ho-hum Christianity, we should be putting rockets underneath people and saying, let's get this right for one, of our, for one another's benefit. So today as we sing these songs, there's no pressure on anybody to respond in any way, but there is opportunity. And I would encourage you today to respond however God wants you to. If you just need to come and kneel at the front, that's fine. If you just want to stand and worship God, that's fine. The thing is that we can't let a letter like that just wash over us and walk away. I don't want to be a church like Laodicea that historically disappeared. I want to be a church that goes from strength to strength. I want to be renowned for, if nothing else in this community, well, if you go to that Catalyst Church, I tell you what, those people are passionate. They're on fire for God. Wouldn't that be a great reputation to have? That's what we need. So this morning, in your own way, would you respond to God? Just do something that's meaningful for you this morning. If you'd like someone to pray for you, we're happy to do that. The most important thing is that we don't be just hearers of the word, that we be doers of it as well. The last passage in that verse says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know these letters, the seven letters, they didn't just go individually to churches. The seven letters went to the seven churches. They passed them around. So the, all the other churches got this same letter too. And they were looking down the road thinking, hmm, Laodicea is not doing too well. But it was a reminder to get things right with God. Don't be fooled and look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm doing well when I'm really not. Let's let that fire burn deep in our hearts, deep in our souls today. And renew our passion for God. Thanks, guys.